Welcome to Messages and More, a podcast channel of Watertown Evangelical Free Church. This channel plays our weekly sermons and other content relevant to our church community. All right, well, good morning. Uh, welcome. If I've not met you or introduced myself yet, I'm Bruce Drugsma. I'm the senior pastor here at Watertown Evangelical Free Church. We are glad you are here. If you are visiting the first time, uh, we, like Luke said, we'd love to meet you at the Hello Station. Also, if you're visiting the first time and want to send your kids out to the preschool programming, I'd encourage you to go with them so you can sign them in and make sure we have the relevant information uh, that we need. And happy summer. With uh, the kids out of school and the warm weather here, it's summer. For a lot of us, that might mean vacations are coming or uh, going up to the cabin. Maybe we're going camping. Whatever it is, maybe it's just a beautiful day. We thought it would be appropriate here at the church to do a series this summer that kind of allows some of that, knowing that that's that space. I would encourage you, though, to not completely disengage. If you go away... Uh, for a week, you can join us online, which this is a great opportunity for me to greet our online uh, viewers. I don't do that every week, but uh, to those of you that are online, we see you, not literally, but we, we know you're there with us and we appreciate that. Uh, you can also join the uh, afterward by listening to the podcast, but I digress. That's kind of just some shameless promotion of our online uh, resources for you. But we're doing a, a playlist called uh, Israel's, or a, a sermon series titled Israel's Playlist, looking at the Psalms. And, you know, when you talk about a playlist, we talked about this a little bit last week. But if you were to take your phone and you were to say, hey, Siri, play the best of, and you were to pick a, a decade. Or if you were to, to, to sit at your home and say, hey, Alexa, play the best of. There are some you know, playlists, some uh, best of the 80s, best of the 90s, where, where if you threw that out there, you'd get some one-hit wonders. You'd have, if you picked the 80s, for example, you'd have Aha's Take On Me in the, in the one-hit wonder category in the best of the 80s. But you'd also have some people like Michael Jackson and Prince who would just be there. Like multiple times, you would see Michael Jackson showing up in your best of the 80s playlist. And, and I think if we were to tell... You know, if we could look at Siri or Alexa, we could tell it to play a best of playlist for Israel's playlist for the Psalms, David would show up like crazy. There, yeah, we'd have a, a, a Psalm here by Solomon or one by Asaph or, or some anonymous ones, but we'd have David like every other Psalm because he was a prolific Psalmist and he wrote a ton of them. And, and I thought it'd be fun this morning uh, to play a little game. So I'm going to throw a decade up on the screen. I'm going to give you three options. You need to tell me which one you think was the top Billboard album played, or artist, excuse me, artist from that decade. So looking at the 70s, we have the Eagles, which we, we heard a, a, a rendition of an Eagles song. I would just like to point out that I am 40 and I was not born when they were popular. So you might need to adjust your uh, expectations there. Uh, but we have the Eagles, we have Queen, and we have Pink Floyd. So just show of hands, number one artist of the decade. Anyone think it was the Eagles? A few people. Okay, what about Queen? A few more. What about Pink Floyd? According to Billboard charts, it was Pink Floyd. Yeah, so yeah, a couple of you were right. Several of us were wrong. I did not get that one right earlier. Obviously, I know the answers now. Let's go to the 90s. I'm skipping the 80s. Uh, let's go to the 90s. You have Nirvana, you have Celine Dion, and you have Garth Brooks. Any, any Nirvana? A few people thinking it's Nirvana. Anybody for Celine Dion? 
couple. What about Garth Brooks? We have a demographic here that has a certain style I'm picking up on. But actually it was Celine Dion. It was not Garth Brooks. Uh, sorry. And then lastly, 2010s. This one might push you a little more. There are some people that are like, finally, a, a demographic, a, 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 a era I know. Uh, we have Adele, we have Justin Bieber, and we have Taylor Swift. Taylor Swift. Uh, Adele, number one for the 2010s, okay. Justin Bieber, a few more, okay. And Taylor Swift, T-Swift. Uh, for the 2010s, it was Adele. Sorry, yeah. <laughs> That's according to... Uh, album sales, according to streaming records, this is who it was. And if we were to look at the Psalms, David, you know, would be top of the charts. He'd be the number one. And so this morning, we're going to look at a couple of Psalms by, by David because he would be in our best of. He would be in our, you know, hey Siri, play the best of the Psalms. And David would be in there numerous, numerous times. And so we're going to look at two psalms from David. Uh, you'll notice uh, that we're going to look at two. We're going to spend a lot of time in Psalm 69, but we're also going to touch on Psalm 40, both of which were written by David, uh, both of which we don't really know when he wrote them, but we have some hints that I'll get into. But I bring up Psalm 69. I want it to be in there, first of all, because it's an imprecatory psalm. And an imprecatory psalm is, is a word we don't hear very often. Um, but it, it, what it means is that the psalm says some things directed at the enemies of the writer. So the psalmist's enemies that are rude or threatening. Not a common psalm to, to preach from. A psalm that talks about some rude or threatening things towards the enemies. Not a common feature in our, in our modern worship style. To, to sing psalms that are rude and threatening towards those that we view as our enemies. And so I think it's important that we dig into why does David do this and, and, and what makes it a psalm then? Because not only is it imprecatory, but it's also a lament. And a lament is another, another thing. A lament is a feeling of sadness or grief. And so we have both this rude and threatening attitude and this grieving sadness. And we have to kind of ask the question, how is that a psalm? Why is this, you know, how, how is this okay? And uh, I, I'm reminded by uh, a gentleman by the name of Willem A. Van Gemeren, who says, the enemy is always on the periphery and in the center is the psalmist and his God. And so as we look at this psalm, notice that the focus is not on the enemy. God, I hope he gets his. I hope she gets hers. The focus is on the psalmist and his relationship, David's relationship with God. And as we dig into this, notice that it, there's these feelings out there. I want these things to happen, but we're not in, enraged. We're not seeing David respond in, in viciousness, in, in rage. And, and I may digress on this topic, but I think it's important. Um, I'm, I'm a big fan of podcasts, and there's a podcast specifically by Malcolm Gladwell called Revisionist History that I, that I thoroughly have enjoyed. And there's one episode in particular called The King of Tears that I've listened to a couple of times because I found it fascinating. And The King of Tears is a podcast episode about country music specifically and why country music is so sad and why other styles of music are not. 
And ultimately, what, what Malcolm Gladwell gets into is that country music has a language and a genre that allows sadness in a way that rock and roll and hip-hop and other formats of music just don't have a cohesive language that is understood by its population, by its audience, for sadness. Which is why you have so many sad, sad songs, which leads to the joke, what happens if you play a country song backwards? You get your dog back, you get your truck back, you get sober. Because it has a language that allows for this. It allows for sadness. And I think we as a church, as Christians, sometimes struggle with those emotions. We struggle with anger in the church. We struggle with sadness in the church. And as a society, we struggle with those as well. What's the number one complaint from people when they're invited to a funeral? I don't know what to say. I don't want to go because I'll be uncomfortable. I don't know what to say to them. It's not that we literally don't have the words. It's that we don't have a context that we're good at putting that in. We're not good at those words. We're not good in those scenarios. And I'm not suggesting that we, you know, take and, and look at our, our worship teams and say, okay, let's start pr- pr- uh, doing imprecatory praise. Uh, I'm, not, I'm not suggesting that we do only sad songs in the church. Rather, what I'm saying is as we read these, understand that as we look at Scripture, God can handle those emotions that sometimes we think are inappropriate. And that David comes with this imprecatory feeling and this, these sad laments, and it's not something that God goes, whoa, 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 whoa. I don't want to hear that but we do need to keep a focus on where David keeps his focus, that that the relationship with God is where we center that. And and we're gonna look into this a little bit more, but but I, I think it's important that we have these conversations in the church that we go, this is a spot where you can feel anger appropriately, where you can feel sadness appropriately, and we wanna be a church that comes around that, but therefore we need to be a little bit more okay with that being where people are. And I think sometimes, you know, what's one of the things that that I've heard multiple times when I'm at a funeral, when it's somebody that I know that has died, inevitably somebody comes up and goes, don't worry, God works all things together for good. And that's a true statement, but that's not something that's always appropriate to hear in that moment. We're not very good at sitting with that person. As we look at the book of Job, one of the things that Job's comforters, the people who sat with him, They get a lot of criticism and and justifiably so, but one of the things they don't get enough praise for is the fact that for seven days they sat with him and just sat in that grief with him. And I think we sometimes struggle with this. So I wanna bring it up for that reason. But secondly, I also wanna bring it up and my argument for why it would be in the best of Israel's playlist is because Psalm 69 is the most quoted Psalm in the New Testament. Of all the Psalms, Psalm 69 is the most quoted in the New Testament. And so if Jesus and the the apostles and the other New Testament writers uh, quote it so much, I think it deserves our attention. And so we're going to dig into Psalm 69 and go, okay, what is it about this psalm that we should take away? So let's dig in. Psalm 69, the first four verses. Save me, O God, for the waters have come up to my neck. I sink in the miry depths where there is no foothold. I've come into the deep waters. The floods engulf me. I am worn out calling for help. My throat is parched. My eyes fail looking for my God. Those who hate me without reason outnumber the hairs of my head. Many are my enemies without cause. Those who seek to destroy me. I am forced to restore what I did not steal. 
And so our psalmist starts with a complaint. There's an initial complaint here that the psalmist brings up. And this initial complaint, I think we could all relate to. There are times where we have all felt that the water is up to our neck, where we felt overwhelmed. Maybe you felt overwhelmed at school. Maybe it's at work. Maybe it's in a relationship in your family. Maybe it's just in deep grief and sadness. We have these moments where we can relate to that idea that I have no foothold. The water is up to my neck. And the troubles facing the psalmist feel like that level of overwhelming. There's a comedian by the name of Jim Gaffigan who um, I really related to for a time in my life because there was a time in our life for my wife and I when we had four kids under the age of four at home. We had four really little kids under the age of four. It was overwhelming. I felt like the water was up to my neck and Jim Gaffigan made a joke that I could really relate to because he also at the time had four kids. And in one one of his stand-up comedy shows, he stood up and he goes, you wanna know what it's like to have four kids? Just imagine you're drowning and somebody hands you a baby. And I could so relate to that. We've all been there. And and maybe yours isn't being a parent. Maybe, like I said, it's work or it's school or it's coworkers or it's family or it's friends or it's whatever it is. We know that feeling. The water is up to my neck and I can't get a foothold. And we feel like we're a a hair's breadth away from losing control. That's where the psalmist is calling from help, calling for help has exhausted him. The parched throat. My, my throat is dry from crying from help. My eyes are dry. I've cried away all of my tears. And then we see David turn and we see the focus in verse four. Those who hate me without reason. And I think we can all relate to that too. Or maybe, maybe you can relate better to I'm forced to restore what I did not steal. We hate that feeling of unjust retribution where we feel that people hate us for no reason or we feel like we've had to restore that which we did not steal. I had a moment in my life where there was a time where somebody felt like I had deeply wronged them and I didn't feel like I had done anything wrong. But, you know, I, I went into conversation with that person and, and, and uh, was, was told I needed to apologize even though I... I I felt like I had done no wrong. And the person who was asking me to apologize goes, I know you didn't do anything wrong, but you still need to apologize. That's an awful feeling. And I turned to that person, I said, hey, I, I understand that you felt like I wronged you. I would like to apologize and make that right. And they said, about time. And they turned and walked away. That's an awful feeling. Where, where you, you feel not only that your character is under attack, but you feel that you get this double whammy of not only is my character under attack, but I have to give back for something that I didn't do. And that's what David is saying. And, and we don't know exactly when he wrote this, but this could be from when he's fleeing from Absalom, his son. His son usurps the throne and drives him out. And, and we can see David in that moment having to return that which he had not stolen. He has to give up the throne. He has to give up because people are attacking his character for no reason simply to side with Absalom. And so that could be the moment. We don't know, but, but we see that. And that's an awful experience. And we need to sit with people sometimes in that moment. And David sits here and says, God, I, I don't understand. 
And verse four is also our first New Testament reference. Jesus will quote this psalm. In John 15, 25, when he is comforting his disciples before he is crucified, crucified, Jesus himself will say, but this is to fulfill what is written in their law. They hated me without reason. And so when we have those moments, it's comforting to know that we can look to Jesus, that Jesus was hated with no reason. When we have those moments where we feel like we have been completely wronged, we can understand that Jesus, who is holy and perfect and sinless, was hated for no reason. And there might be times where I felt that way, that it wasn't true, but for Jesus, it's always true. He was hated with no reason. And Jesus is talking about the work he has done and the call for us is to follow him despite the risks we may face. And he points back to this psalm. And I want to be clear that it is okay to feel hurt. That's what this psalm shows us. In this moment, in those times when you feel like you are hated with no reason, it is okay to feel hurt. We don't have to, Jesus, when he goes into the garden to pray, he doesn't pretend the cross isn't coming. When he goes into the garden and they're, they're wrongfully turning against him, he doesn't rage back. It is okay to feel hurt. Jesus in that moment cries out, Lord, if it can be taken from me, please take this cup, but not my will, but yours be done. It is okay to want that to end. And so our image is Christ. Our model is Christ. And I would argue that the reason we see that in Jesus and the reason that we see that here in David is that David here is gonna move on to acknowledging that unlike Jesus, I'm not perfect. In that moment when I felt justifiably angry and wronged, I also had to admit that I am not perfect. As a sinner, I have wronged others and not been aware of it. And so humility helps. And so our psalm moves on. In verse five, you, God, know my folly. My guilt is not hidden from you. Which moves us to this idea that how do we, how do we deal with these moments? Through confession of our own sin. And this is a common theme in scripture, I think, and I hope you see it as a common theme here in, in my preaching and in this church. The idea of taking stock of ourself and our own sin is often the first step. David steps back as much as he feels justifiably angry and as much as he feels wrong. David, who is a man after God's own heart, one of those attributes that makes him that is the fact that he stands there going, God, I know I'm not innocent. And so while I'm being unjustifiably accused now, I know I am not innocent. God, you know my folly. We are not free from guilt ourselves. And so David here is what I call choosing to fill the gap. There are times in our life where our expectation is here and our reality is here and there's a gap between the two. What we think should happen and what is happening are separate and there's a gap and we have a choice how we're gonna fill that gap. Are we gonna fill that gap with when we feel unjustifiably wronged with rage? And how dare they? Do they not know I'm not as bad as them? Or are we gonna, in humility, fill that gap positively and say, you know what, as much as, as wrong as this is, and I'm not justifying it, as wrong as this is, I know I have wronged God, and that is far worse. And so we come into it with that humility to know that we are 
100% responsible for our sins. As much as I would like somebody else to take responsibility for theirs, I can't make that happen. But I can take 100% responsibility for my sins and my role in it. And for David, even in the face of a wrongful accusation from adversaries, he does not deny his own guilt. David doesn't sit there saying, yeah, but God, I'm not as bad as them. He says, God, my guilt is not hidden. And his humility changes his focus and keeps his focus from becoming raging for vengeance, acknowledging the pain, but instead of raging for vengeance, his focus changes. And we pick it up in verse six. Lord, the Lord Almighty, may those who hope in you not be disgraced because of me. God of Israel, may those who seek you not be put to shame because of me. For I endure scorn for your sake and shame covers my face. I am a foreigner to my own family, a stranger to my own mother's children. For zeal for your house consumes me and the insults of those who insult you fall on me. When I weep and fast, I must endure scorn. When I put on sackcloth, people make sport of me. Those who sit at the gate mock me and I am the song of the drunkards. And so this is his second complaint. We see his focus has shifted from his first complaint being a, a call for vengeance and then a reminder of his own guilt and sin. His focus has shifted in this second complaint. It's not about personal justice anymore. It's not about vengeance. And this, this passage gives us some color for the first complaint. We see that not only is he accused without reason, but we see that that accusation centers around his faith. When I wear sackcloth, when I fast, I am mocked. I'm unknown to my family. And again, I think there are times where we can relate to this. But we need to be careful here. We need to be careful that we don't turn a minor doctrinal issue that we hold to that somebody disagrees with us on, right? I hold to this belief around around who God is or, or whatever that is, is not core to who God is or our faith, but it's kind of a secondary thing and somebody disagrees with me on it. And therefore, if, I, if they disagree with me, then I'm gonna say, God, see, see, they don't honor you and they don't honor scripture. And if they don't honor you and if they don't honor scripture, they're not really a Christian. And then it's justifiable for me to be angry. And so we have to avoid that ditch of falling into those petty disagreements but the passage here makes it clear what is happening. They are scorning and mocking David for his faith. And we are called as Christians to expect that behavior. We are called to expect it. John 16, I have told you these things so that in me you will have peace. In this world, you will have trouble. But take heart. I have overcome the world. We should expect bad behavior. We should expect it. We should expect to be taunted for our zeal for the Lord. We should expect to be, uh, have people not understand why we do the things we do. But I, again, I want to pull us back here. Notice what is not included in this passage. What is not included is David's call for vengeance. Notice his focus is, God, may they not fall away on account of me. May others who are following the Lord not fall away on account of me. May I not reflect poorly on who you truly are, God, in this moment. As I'm being mocked, as I'm being made fun of, let me not reflect you poorly to the world. 
May those who hope in you not be disgraced because of me. What David's focus is on is on the glory of God, not on his own personal vanity, which brings us back to that humility. It's not about me. When I feel wronged and I feel like people are turning against me because of my faith, am I more focused on my own personal vanity and how I am perceived or am I worried about how God is perceived? Where is my focus? And once again, our example is Jesus Christ. John 2 is another place where we see this psalm quoted. Jesus clears the temple and the disciples' thoughts turn to God. As Jesus is clearing the temple in justifiable righteous anger, their thoughts turn to God and that is where we see this psalm quoted. John chapter two, verses 16 and 17. To those who sold doves, he said, get these out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a market. His disciples remembered that it is written, zeal for your house will consume me. That's from Psalm 69. A good litmus test for our anger, whether it's righteous and justifiable, is that. When we respond in anger, are people's thoughts turning to God or to us and our vanity? Are people repenting in turning in, in that anger? Are they seeing God or are they seeing me? And that's a good litmus test. Not everybody responded to Jesus' righteous, justifiable anger that way. Not everybody repented, but the disciples' thoughts turned to Scripture, to God. Not to their vanity. Not to their, he's defending our view of faith. And in case we miss this idea that our righteous anger should turn others and ourselves toward God, David continues the psalm with a hymn. But I pray to you, Lord, in the time of your favor, in your great love, O God, answer me with your sure salvation. Rescue me from the mire. Do not let me sink. Deliver me from those who hate me, from the deep waters. Do not let the floodwaters engulf me or the depths swallow me up or the pit close its mouth over me. Answer me, Lord, out of the goodness of your love. In your great mercy, turn to me. Do not hide your face from your servant. Answer me quickly, for I am in trouble. Come near and rescue me. Deliver me because of my foes. And here we see David finally make his appeal for God's intervention. Ultimately, David is not relying on his own justifiable anger. Again, we, we think the psalm was written as he was fleeing from Absalom. And when he fled from Absalom, what started that process was a justifiable anger where David was criticized for his faith. And so it ties in, and we don't know that, but I, I think that's logical. This could be when he wrote it. And if that's the case, his appeal is not to his armies. It's not to his troops. It's not to his, his own works. His appeal in this moment is to God. And what makes psalms of lament and psalms of imprecatory psalms something that we can relate to is this. While the complaints come out of a real-life concrete situation, the psalmist writes in such a way that other worshipers who come afterward can use the psalm as a model prayer for similar, though not necessarily identical, situations. What is his appeal? His appeal is to God, and can we all relate to that? Yes. 
He's not appealing for a specific solution to his specific problem. He's looking to God and saying, God, you are a big God and you are able to move. So God, move. Because this is the root. This is what separates Israel's grumbling in the wilderness from David's biblical lament. What's the difference? The difference is the Israelites, when they were wandering in the wilderness and God criticized them for grumbling, it's because they didn't think God would act or could act. David turns to God and asks him to act in his time and in his way. The Israelites grumbled. Did you just bring us out here into the wilderness to die? Were there not enough graves in Egypt? Which is my favorite complaint of theirs. That's grumbling. And we know the difference. We can see the difference. We know the difference when somebody comes up to us and says, yeah, my stupid car, it's got this problem and this problem and this problem. And we look at them and go, well, have you tried this? Bah, it won't work, it's a stupid car. That's grumbling. Lamenting, complaining is going to your mechanic and saying, it's got this problem, it's got this problem, it's got this problem. You're saying the same things, but you're looking to the mechanic to help instead of looking to your friend to go, yeah, your car is awful. Poor you. Or take physical ailments. Ah, the trick knee's bothering me again. Have you gone to your doctor? No, I'm not going to the doctor. You're grumbling. Are we turning to God? This is his appeal. God is able to hold our laments. God does not demand that we pretend all is well when it hurts. And David can turn to God and say, may their tables become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. May their eyes be darkened so they cannot see and their backs be bent forever, which is another reference in Romans 11. And after he says that, and also says, may their place be deserted, let there be no one to dwell in their tents, which you may recognize from Judas later on. After he says all of that, after he says the, the imp- imprecation, I think that's how you say it, after he calls for hardship on them, he says a call to worship, let heaven and earth praise him. The seas and all that move in them For God will save Zion and rebuild the cities of Judah. Then people will settle there and possess it. The children of his servants will inherit it, and those who love his name will dwell there. Because that is ultimately the call of lament. That is ultimately the call of an imprecatory psalm. We are called back to God, and our desire is for those who are separate from God to turn back as well. The imprecatory psalm, the psalm of lament, turns David's focus from his own troubles to a desire to see them follow God. And we see that in the response. And you'll notice that that's the end of the psalm. And yet I said we're going to talk about Psalm 40. And I'm not going to do a whole other sermon on Psalm 40. But I want us to see where Psalm 40 starts. Because I think Psalm 40 is David's response. The Psalms weren't written in the order that they are necessarily in our scripture, but I think Psalm 40 is his response because you'll notice that it parallels the start of Psalm 69. Psalm 40, the first three verses. I waited patiently for the Lord. He turned to me and heard my cry. He lifted me out of the slimy pit, out of the mud and mire. He set my feet on a rock and gave me a firm place to stand. He put a new song in my mouth a hymn of praise to our God. 
Many will see and fear the Lord and put their trust in him. Because that's what turning to God does. It turns our heart off of our own injustice, reminds us of the injustice that Jesus Christ faced on our behalf, and turns our hearts towards those who have wronged us to see them find the same freedom we have. And it doesn't deny the feeling, but it does shift our focus. So would you pray with me? So God, as we face the challenges of life, God, it is easy to turn and look to ourselves, God, and see how we have been wronged and how we have been harmed. God, help us to turn to you. God, help us to turn to you not only to see, God, how you have so saved us, Lord, but to see our own responsibility. God, to to repent of our own wrongdoing. And Lord, in that humility to see the opportunity for somebody else to turn to you as well. And God, help us to take these these things, these angers, these frustrations, this bitterness, God, whatever it is that, that feels like it's about to overwhelm us, God, and help us to give it to you, to know that you are a big God who can handle that. And Lord, to trust that you are moving. And even though we can't always see a way out, Lord, you are standing there with us. I pray this in your name. Amen. Uh, Just a couple of really quick announcements before we go. Uh, Back at the welcome table, not only if you're new would I like you to go back there, but I'd like everybody to go back there. We have a couple of signups. We have a church work day coming June 17th. We have a lot of projects around church. The projects we're planning on tackling are listed back there, as well as like what materials would be needed, as well as opportunities to sign up to bring donuts or bars. All of the above, we'd love to have people show up. We'd love to know who's coming so we can prioritize the projects. If you're able to make it, I would love for you to go back and just sign up for whatever, whatever you feel like you can handle. Um, also, back there, you'll find a sign up for Rails to Trails. We have a bouncy house. Uh, we'd love to have some people uh, signing up. We have a Friday is covered, but we're still looking for some help on Saturday to be a presence in our community. Um, And then lastly, we also have a a church baptism coming up. At this point, we don't have anybody for sure signed up to get baptized. I know there's some people out there talking about it. We will do an outdoor service and potluck if we don't have any baptisms, but we'd really like to do some baptisms. So if you're looking to be baptized, there is a QR code there. Um, You can also talk to me. Uh, We'd love to get you the information so that you you can be baptized that day. That's July 9th. Okay, I think that's it. Uh, our benediction this morning, Jude 24, uh, Jude verses 24 and 25. To him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you before his glorious presence without fault and with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, be glory, majesty, power, and authority through Jesus Christ, our Lord, before all ages, now and forevermore. Amen. Have a great week. and. Uh, remember to talk to Giannis in the back about the Gideons if you wanted to. He'll be out at a table. Have a great week. Thank you for listening to Messages and More, a ministry of Watertown Evangelical Free Church. To find out more, visit us online at wevfree.org.